work hard and be nice. And cheesy and cliched as that is, that is pretty much my guiding principles. I work hard because you have to work hard to keep any small business going and be nice, which is don't be a dick. Hey, welcome to the Lady Brains podcast. We're your hosts, Caitlin Judd and Anna McKenzie, co-founders of Lady Brains, a digital and IRL club for female founders and founders to be. If you're smart, savvy and ambitious, then Lady Brain, you are in the right place. Get ready for a dose of inspo, hard-hitting truths and actionable insights. Strap in. Is it possible to build a profitable, fulfilling business working just three days a week? That's how Jen Bishop, former newspaper journalist and magazine editor, has built The Interiors Addict. It's Australia's largest interior design, styling and renovation blog for the everyday Aussie. She started the blog a decade ago as a hobby and now generates over 150,000 readers per month. Jen has intentionally kept her operation lean, employing contractors to create the majority of her content, while she focuses her time on bringing in the cash through brand sponsorships, advertising and being a brand ambassador. Jen has designed her business around the lifestyle that she wants to live. And in this chat, she explains exactly how she's gone about it. I wanted to kick off by reading a LinkedIn post that you made yesterday. You said, okay, today marks a decade of self-employment, which started with me being made redundant while my permanent residency was still pending. I still look back on this as a very distressing time, but boy, did it lead to good things. Can you tell us a little bit about (laughs) that? It says it all, doesn't it? Yeah, there's a lot wrapped up Um, in that single sentence. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Tell us the story. So I guess I've been in Australia for from the UK, you can probably tell. Um, I've been in Australia for about um, five years and um, or nearly five years and um, I was working as um, editor of a small business magazine and then I became the associate publisher and then the publisher and um, I was there for, you know, five years nearly and it was a great job and then um, unfortunately, quite surprisingly to me, I got made redundant because, you know, print is dead and, um, you know, being in print publishing was was really hard at the time and, um, yeah, I got made redundant while my permanent residency was still pending, which is a really bad thing because if you lose your job when you're on a, uh, what was a 457 visa at the time, um, you have 30 days oh my to God. find another job or leave the country. And um, so, yeah, it came out of the blue. I was planning my wedding. And oh, my God. So you <laughs> weren't married yet. leave the country. So you didn't have <laughs> no. that as a, you know. No, oh and my, my residency was like a work-sponsored one, not a a partner-sponsored one. So it was a very stressful time. But, oh, my goodness, like just someone was looking out for me because within, I think it was in a week, I got the call from my um, immigration lawyer saying that it had come through. And it was just, you know, I didn't pull any strings. I didn't know anyone. It just came good for me and it just meant that it, I got the call. I was still at work working my notice and um, I just burst into tears <laughs> and that was that. So then I guess it was um, a case of, well, do I try and take this blog that I've been building as a bit of a hobby and turn it into a business or do I just go and get another job? Um, and I decided to give the old blog a go and yeah, decade later, here we are. <laughs> it's a very short version. God, wow. I, can't, I can't imagine getting that call up saying, 
your visas being processed. Like that is. Yeah, it was amazing because it just gave me the freedom to be self-employed to do what I wanted to do. Um, and it was, yeah, it was, it was amazing. It was like, okay, it's all good. I'm still getting married. I'm still staying in the country. And why not give blogging for work a go? And I did always said, I'll give it six months. What's the worst that can happen? Um, if it doesn't work out in six months, I'm pretty employable. I'll just get another job. So yeah, I didn't look at it as a huge, huge risk. I looked at it as let's just try. Cause I had a pretty half decent redundancy payout. So mm-hmm. I thought, yeah, I'll just try. Cause I don't want to regret not trying. So, um, yeah, here we are. I <laughs> still pinch myself that this is still my job. So at what stage, like how big was the blog when you decided to to give it a crack? Like were you generating a lot of readers already? Did you go, okay, well, I have enough traffic to my website that I think mm. I can sell ads? Or were you still relatively small? Still relatively small, but um, I wish I'd sort of made a note more of the numbers. But I think at that time it was maybe about 40,000 readers, which is pretty big pretty for big. a hobby. Yeah, it's pretty <laughs> big for a hobby, yeah. yeah. But not huge for a, you know, a business or, you know, a publisher. Um, so, and people had already started to ask if they could advertise at that point, before this point, while I still had a day job. Um, but I wasn't able to, to earn money f- from any other source than my visa sponsor. So, um, uh. I had this deal going where if people wanted to advertise, I would let them make a donation to charity and send me the receipt and then I would put that ad on the blog. <laughs> oh, wow. Like that's resourceful. A cute little thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, that's, that's, how it's, that's how it started. Um, and then when, it, when I realized it was going to become a business, I had to quite quickly like professionalize a lot of stuff. Like when I started the blog, it was on Tumblr, which no one uses anymore. <laughs> um, very hard to put ads on Tumblr. <laughs> yeah. So very quickly sort of moved it to WordPress and got, got serious, you know, got rid of the Gmail address and, um, and started being pretending to be bigger than I was, you know, fake it till you make it and all of that. So was that all within that first six months that you said that you were trying to prove that you had enough demand, enough readership? Like what were you actually doing in those six months? Can you Do you remember? Can you paint a picture? Yeah, I can remember that in that first six months I was scrabbling very much. Like to be completely honest, it was like there was no way that it suddenly became enough to, you know, be a, a, a full-time income. Um, so I was just doing everything I could do to charge money for, like I was doing copywriting, I was doing social media audits for people, um, all of that kind of thing. I think I did a bit of strategy for like some PR people. So I just was kind of like a freelancer that had a blog. And so there was a bit of money coming in from the blog. Um, and it was, it was very quickly enough. Um, but then it changed quite in a, quite a big way when, um, I'm not entirely sure. It was less than a year in, um, and a an eight. I started working with an agency who sold my ads for me, mm. um, and that really changed everything. I think I then had about sixty thousand readers, something like that. Um, so they started selling my ads for me on a commission only basis, and that was when people still bought ads, which they don't really anymore. <laughs> they buy content, but um, things did change quite a bit then. At that point, because it was hard as a one man band without the contacts to be, um, you know, finding all those agency people that were making the decisions and buying the, the, the ads. So, um, 
that was really good at that point. That changed things quite a bit. Mm. Mm. And then from a content perspective, I mean, what what was the goal? I mean, obviously it's, you know, an interior blog, but did you have, like, were you just testing different types of content in those early days? Had you already proved that? I think the content was already pretty strong before it ever made any money. And I think that's because I'm I'm a journalist by background. So mm. for me, creating content or knowing what was newsworthy or what would be appealing to people was um, came naturally. So I think a lot of what I've done is what I was doing in my day job, but I was writing about something quite dry and working for someone else. And I just looked at it, well, now I work for myself and I write about what I love. Brilliant. <laughs> like I just a lot of transferable skills from working in magazine publishing to having my own online magazine, I guess. I guess your brand, I mean, you are the face of your brand, Jen Bishop. Very much so. Um, yeah. You know, your social media profiles, I mean, you know, it's largely interiors, but you still sort of appear, you still exist, you still are the face of the brand. Yep. Do you see yourself as an influencer or not? It's it's such a good question because I I kind of hate being called an influencer, but um, you've got to look at it as, um, you know, there are brands that want to work with me because they see me as an influencer. There are brands that want to work with me because they see me as an online publication. Sometimes they're different pots of marketing spend. So I'm quite happy to be an influencer if people want to see me as that and mm. that's fine. But I do think the word has very like negative connotations these days, um, which is a shame because some influencers are, are doing great things. And I can say myself as a human, I buy things all the time that I see on Instagram that someone's tried, you know, people whose opinion I trust. And that should be what it is. You know, it should be influencers sharing genuine opinions on good products mm -hmm. and other people buy them. You know, that's great. That's a marketing dream. Um, unfortunately, I suppose, because it's so oversaturated and lots of influencers have kind of got this bad reputation because maybe that it's not actually their job. They just take loads of freebies and, you know, ghost people and, and there's all these sort of bad horror stories. So I think influencers become a bit of a a negative thing. And I also at 41 years old feel way too old to be an influencer. <laughs> I'm like a dinosaur. <laughs> so uh, look, like the, the influencers are like dinosaur. 21. So yeah, um, I feel like, yeah, I don't know. Sometimes I'll go to a, an event that's more influencers have been invited than, you know, like homes media. And I feel like yeah. so like a fish out of water. I'm like, I'm too old and not cool enough to be here. And I don't want to take a million selfies. And <laughs> I just mm, I just so want to go fair. home and sit on the couch with a wine. <laughs> that's so fair. Same. Do you ever do you ever feel like you're influencing trends though? Or do you feel like you're reporting on trends? Reporting on trends, to be honest. Yeah, yep. yeah very much so. So I think um, the point of difference with Interiors Addict in terms of like all the print and online um, interiors publications is that, that we very much want to be mainstream. Like I, we used to have a catchphrase that was style without the snobbery and um, it's very much for everyday people. And, and that's kind of driven by the fact that I'm not an interior designer. Like I have a, an eye for design and I share stuff that I do in my own home, but I'm not an interior designer. I'm a journalist. And I think people like that because I'm like them and showing that, you know, you can have a nice house without having to be qualified or having to pay for an interior designer. Not that, you know, I don't think that that's money well spent, but um, 
yeah, I just want it to be relatable and like achievable for everyone. Mm -hmm. That's an interesting point because I think a lot of people um, have media profiles or create content or even have brands in areas where they're not technically qualified. Yep. Has that ever, um, have you ever battled with that? Have you ever sort of thought or ever had imposter syndrome or ever had, um, of course, yeah, you know, that thought around like, oh, I'm not qualified, like. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. And um, there was a bit of pushback in the early days, um, not directly, but I would hear things on the grapevine. I knew that there were people in the industry that weren't quite happy that this person's just, a, this POMS just appeared out of nowhere, <laughs> who's, uh, you know, reporting on the Australian interior design seat, scene, mm-hmm. who's not an interior designer and, you know, who is she? Suddenly she's getting invited to stuff and we're reading stuff, you know, she's getting a bit of PR and um, that that was a thing. And I can kind of understand it to an extent, but I think that you just prove yourself by sticking around and those people also then realized that I could actually do them favors because I was trying to highlight and shine, you know, shine a light on the talent in the industry. I I didn't need to pretend to to be a designer and I don't kind of go out of my way to say, just so you know, and this is kind of like an imposter syndrome thing. It's like, Mm. I know I'm not an interior designer. Don't think I'm trying to say I'm one. I know I'm not. (laughs) Um, So yeah, I don't feel that pushback anymore. Been around for a decade. So people got used to the fact I wasn't trying to, you know, take their job. I was just trying to talk about what they did. Yeah. You're trying to give them a helping hand. Exactly. Yeah. Not a threat. Actually. You're not a Someone threat. who can help them. Yeah. Yeah. Like why, well, what is your secret sauce? Like why do you think you've stuck around for 10 years for a decade? What, what is the secret? Um, I think a lot of it is to do with being a journalist and a storyteller by background. You know, I am very confident to say that's what I'm trained to do is to, you know, tell stories and to write and to create content. That is what I'm trained to do. That's what I've proven myself as. That's what I did for years before I became a blogger. Um, So I think so much of making it a business has been to do with A, you know, being being a content creator by trade, and be having um, having the ability to make to commercialize that to make money from it. Um, obviously, really important part of making a business. You know, you can create the content, but you've got to know how to be able to monetize it too. Mm. Let's talk about that. You said yep. um, earlier that you know. Uh, brands don't buy ads anymore. They buy content. So can you talk us through your business model? What are the different revenue streams? Um, How do you generate cash? Yeah, sure. Um, I guess there's three, four main ones. Um, Sponsored content. So that could be a sponsored blog post or a sponsored um, social media post, normally Instagram um, or a reel or something like that. Um, People do buy ads, but in the newsletter. So um, people don't sort of generally buy ads on websites so much anymore, but um, people do buy ads in our newsletter. And then increasingly um, revenue has come from being a brand ambassador for for a brand, um, which is where it's, I don't know, it's, it's quite a unique um, thing to be someone that can talk about interiors and is confident 
to go on TV, on a morning TV show, for example. Mm. But because I'm not an interior designer, there's no conflict there. I'm a commentator. Um, so increasingly that's become part of my revenue stream is a brand paying me to be their spokesperson, whether that's in a media release or doing a TV interview or um, being at an event and that kind of thing. Jen, did you ever, was there a point, I mean, you just said earlier, um, you know, brands stopped paying for ads, especially on the blog. Were there any other moments over the last 10 years where you did start to see behavior change and thought, oh God, I'm going to have to change the strategy or, or yeah, you were either concerned or you thought I'm going to have to kind of not throw out what I'm doing, but I'm going to have to Mm. really reconsider my strategy moving forward. I think it's a constant thing. I think, um, when you're self-employed, A, when you're self-employed and B, when you do something that you love so much that you're so scared that someone's going to take it away from you and then mm. you might have to go and work for someone else, shock horror, which <laughs> I would hate to do. Um, I can't, I am just constantly reassessing. Like it's something I'm always doing um, because like I say, I do pinch myself that this is my job and the fear of that not being the case forever is just keeps me constantly making sure I'm on top of things and if there's new trends with things, knowing what, you know, what works on Instagram, educating myself by doing courses about, you know, things that are changing. Um, so it's, it's just something that I'm constantly doing. Um, and I think in, in terms of over the last 10 years, like the only time where I've really had the fear that God, this might be it was during the pandemic. (laughs) So, um, that was a scary time because when the first lockdown happened, everyone's marketing spend did just, just freeze because people panicked and I sure did panic myself because, you know, bookings were just cancelled and there was no way I could say, sorry, you've signed the booking form, you have to pay. It was just mm. we couldn't do that in that time. So that's the only time where I ever sort of did think, God, oh, this actually might end. Wow. <laughs> but luckily it didn't. <laughs> but that was thanks to you know, the government support for small business, which got me through that patch. And um, by the time we got to like the next lockdown, everyone was spending money on their homes. Everyone was spending what they would spend on going to Europe on doing a renovation. And I actually had so much work then. Um, it just completely like flipped and there was so much work. I didn't really have the time to do it because I was also homeschooling. So that oh was fun. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for being honest about that because I just don't think people uh, people do understand and, and so so many of us experienced those challenges, but especially yeah. from a content perspective. Yeah. And just the fact that in the first year to the second year it was so vastly different and we experienced yeah. a really similar occurrence. I mean, brands yeah. just stopped spending. And you yeah. would think the perception is, well, you know, you're visual or audio or, you know, people are at home and they have time. Yes. That, you know, the brands were just throwing money at all of us, but it just wasn't the yeah. case because everyone was had no idea what was going on. Exactly. And and that's what that's the story we're trying to tell brands. You know, mm. people are around, they are going to be reading it. You want to be the one that stands out by not pulling your advertising. It's going to be mm. less c- crowded space. Um, but, you know, the reality of being in a business was that, you know, people had to get paid and things, cuts had to be made. And unfortunately, like marketing's been probably one of the first ones to go. So... Yeah, they were fun times. I think for me, um, continuing to, you know, I have, I look at it as I have kind of like two lots of clients. I have the clients that pay me, who are the brands that advertise, 
and I have my audience who don't pay me anything, who I give a lot of, mm. you know, who for free, technically, I give content and things they enjoy and find useful. So I kept serving those people, even though the money wasn't coming in. I kept doing my job in terms of 70% of the content on the blog is not sponsored, at least. So I kept doing that. Um, and I guess luckily I did have money in the bank and and that's a another great lesson is that you should have money in the in the business bank account four times like this which everyone talked about in the past everyone said that but no one really ever thought that you would have this pandemic situation where you might need a few months money in the bank um so I've always done that and and I'm grateful that I have because you know I needed that those savings at that time, still had to pay the mortgage. I want to talk about um, the brand partnerships that you were mm-hmm. talking about, those those kind of bigger, more strategic um, long-term yeah. brand partnerships. Um, I guess I've got a few questions. I'd, I'd love to know, you know, is that more of an inbound, outbound um, approach? I do think I'm in a very – so um, I talked earlier about how I started working with an agency and they were selling my advertising and that lasted for maybe – couple of years. I'm not entirely sure. Um, And then they actually um, went, that business closed. So at that point, I decided that I would take it in-house, stop giving someone 40% and and that I was the best person to sell my brand. Um, And so for a very long time now, I guess my job has been more of a salesperson than a content creator because I have other people now that can create a lot of the content. I tend to create the sponsored content, but the other content, the you know, the editorial, the journalism content, I'd call it, um, other people can do that now. Um, but yeah, in terms of the partnerships, they are overwhelmingly inbound. So people come to me um, and it's weird because sometimes I sort of, you know, in this constant reevaluation of how I do things, I'm like, well, imagine if I you know, like really got on the phones and um, and started selling also, you know, cold calling and, and doing outbound stuff as well. But it, it rarely works. People come to me when they have the need at the time that they have that need um, to work with someone like me. Um, so it's really, it's hard in a way because it's very unpredictable, but somehow it just seems to be, a very constant flow of, of work. You know, there aren't like these um, months that are terrible and then really good months. It just seems, I guess, I've been around long enough now that enough people come to me. But yeah, people people find me, <laughs> which is a great position to be in, of course. Um, and I don't often say no because it's very rare that the wrong fit mm. will approach me because I guess it's quite a niche, you know, it's people who want to talk to, about interiors and renovation, but not at an extremely high end, not at an extremely budget end, but all those people in the middle. Um, I mean, sometimes I do say no, but it's it's rare, to be honest, not because I'm not being fussy, but just because the wrong people don't come to me or they don't find me. I mean, it just means you're so clearly, you've so clearly positioned yourself in the market. 
I guess so. Yeah, I hope so. So, Jen, obviously there are so many awesome things about running your own business, but it is inherently a hard path. Like it is a tough road to take at times. What role does work and your business play in your life? Like how important is it to you? Cliched, I know, but family is absolutely number one for me. But then that's why having a flexible job that works around my kids is so important to me and is probably the, well, it's definitely the biggest benefit to self-employment is the fact that I can be flexible. I can volunteer in the canteen at school. I can do pick up and it's, yeah, that's really important to me. So I love my job, but I'm not obsessed with it. And I really value flexibility and being part-time. Has there ever been a moment where the challenges of building a business have almost killed the passion? Has there ever been a moment where you're like, I just want to enjoy interiors and, and, and all the, the beautiful things and the, you know that I love? Just I just don't want to have to do that with the, the business side of things. Has there ever been a moment that you It hasn't like, ruined it for much? me, but yeah. it, my relationship with interiors has massively changed. So there was a time mm. where I used to be so excited about it, every new thing, and I guess finding myself in a position where I knew about every new thing and people sent me new things and sent me information about new things. And I was so excited by everything that was new. I wanted to change everything all the time in my own home. And and now I've got to a point where I guess also like you get more in tune with your own style. You can't just change your house every five minutes. A, it's really expensive, but B, it's just like, just gets messy. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, your house doesn't feel like cohesive and all of that kind of thing. So um, I guess interiors is less of a hobby for me now. You know, I'm less about going out and buying the latest thing. I'm happy. I, I guess I get my interiors fixed by looking at beautiful projects that people have done and, and like, you know, renovations and, and think, you know, before and afters, I still, there's still nothing I love more than a before and after house. And mm. that's the content that our readers also love the best. Mm. Um, have to say that being interiors addict when renovating your own home is actually super stressful because you feel this massive expectation um, that what you do is going to be perfect. And then the imposter syndrome really kicks in because it's like, I made these decisions and I'm interiors addict. Of course, I'm going to share it with my audience because it's great content. Mm. Um, But the feeling that people might look at this and think, oh, that's not very good or she chose that wrong or it's just not that cool or whatever. (laughs) It's just like massive. It's massively stressful whenever I share something from my own home. And more often than not, it's so popular and people love it because they, you know, we all want to see inside other people's houses. Um, but I find it very stressful, <laughs> I have to say. I don't want to share things until they're finished, but mm-hmm. I do because I want that to be the difference that I'm showing the during, the before and the during. Um, and and our house, which is now almost finished, um, was really awful when we bought it. Like it was so bad and so nana and so uncool. Um, but I did, I think people appreciated that I shared that and that mm. there was a vision and that now we've gone all the way through to it being nothing like its former self. Mm. It's a great story. 
And I mean, that, but, that's exactly yeah, but what it you're is, primed to tell. Exactly, but so stressful. <laughs> so much pressure. <laughs> I guess it's like us, right? We share stories of founders, but then having to share our own story of being founders is, that's pretty much the same thing. It's a, it's, it's a bit yeah. It's scarier. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It is. It is. Mm. It's a bit vulnerable. Mm. Very vulnerable. But people love that because it's real and, you know, mm. you can learn from that. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what are you working on at the moment? What are you doing? What's, uh, what's on your plate? Like everyone and their wife dabbling in the, um, the what online course can I create world. So yeah, oh. it's just finding the time. It's just finding the damn time That's to exciting. work out what it is. Yeah. Have you got some ideas? Yeah, I do have some ideas. <laughs> I don't know if I'm ready to, uh, to um, share them yet. Okay, fine. But they will be very much, you know, along the lines of cryptocurrency. What I think, well, what I think, <laughs> what I think makes Interior Addict different, and that is like the everyday person element. Like, if there's something that I am passionate about, mm. it's I want everyone to love their home as much as I love my home. Like, I get a real kick out of when my home's looking nice, when it's finished, when it feels cozy, when it feels personal. Um, I want everyone to have that. Like I get really sad if I go to someone's house and they have n like not, and this isn't like criticizing them, but when you can tell that people just see their home as some, somewhere where they live, it's a shelter, you know, it's not somewhere where they, yeah, it's not, not somewhere where they come home and feel cozy and feel yeah happy because they've got all this stuff around them that they love or art that they love. Um, and I just want but everyone do you to think, have that. But do you think that is everyone's, like not everyone has that. Not everyone no, values that or cares about that. So is that no. something that you're trying to, are you trying to teach the people that don't understand? I'm not. I think you're right in that there's some people that never will, like they won't care and that's fine. Um, but I guess the people I'm trying to tap into is the people that don't think they can have that. Like they'd love to, but they don't think that's something they can achieve by themselves. And I'd like to show them that actually, yes, you can. Um, yeah, great. With just some pretty small tweaks. Um, and a lot of this interior stuff is really hard for people. Um, and you realize that having like a natural bit of an eye for it is quite, um, is the minority. Like so many of my friends, I help them with their homes and they're like, can you believe how how hard I find this compared to how easy you find it. And I'm like, no, actually, because the majority of people can't visualize mm. and do really struggle with what size rug and what paint color mm. and that kind of stuff. So we have one last question. What book, podcast, message, quote, piece of advice, like what is one thing that you can leave our listeners with? Yeah. Can I have two? Yeah. <laughs> Um, so in terms of like books, the four hour work week, I read very early in the piece and, um, I definitely recommend that book for people who are starting out and it just made me realize. And I also think that when you do start your own business, you do really realize that you can achieve so much in so much less time when you're, you don't have to go through layers of approvals or bosses or, you know, you can be so nimble and you can actually do so much more and earn so much more in a smaller amount of time 
which is very exciting and very liberating. Um, and in terms of quotes, again, this is so cheesy. And as an interiors person, like people who think they're, you know, cool with interiors as something that always gets made fun of is people having signs in their home that say things like live, laugh, love, for example. <laughs> It's like a big no-no if you're a cool interiors person. But um, I did I did have this print way back in the early days. Um, I can't remember if someone gave it to me and it was just all it said was um, work hard and be nice. And cheesy and cliched as that is, that is pretty much my guiding principles. I work hard because you have to work hard to keep any small business going and be nice which is a you know just don't be a dick <laughs> and mm. b when you're the face of your brand i think it's really important to be your real self all the time because i will meet people all the time that oh you're interiors addict and they, they know me as interiors addict not as jen sometimes people can't even remember what my name is they'll be like you're interiors addict what's your name again um People feel like they know you. So when you meet them in real life, if you're not the same person that you've been portraying on social media, then like that's going to be really disappointing for people. So for me, it's way easier to just be the same person, whoever you're talking to, whether you're on socials, whether you're on a podcast, whether you're in real life, I'm the same person. And it's just really much easier to be that way. So I think there are a lot of great lessons in that conversation, but the one that really stood out for me, Anna, was the idea that you don't have to be a qualified expert, that you can be an expert observer or commentator. I mean, obviously, Jen, she's a journalist, right? That is her skill and that's what she's bringing to the table. She doesn't necessarily have a design degree, but that doesn't matter. And I know that she mentioned that whole, you know, imposter syndrome can sometimes creep in. But at the end of the day, she's showing up with a unique skill and she's bringing that to the table. And I liken this to think about like a sports commentator. You kind of have two people that that turn up to that job. You've got the journalists, the people that have studied and that have the experience reporting on sport. And while they haven't maybe played sport before, they know the rules of the game. They've put in 10,000 hours probably watching and practicing, speaking about sport. So they are qualified to be there. And then on the other side, you also have the sports people that end up maybe possibly retiring and moving into media and they have played the game. So they're reporting on it from a unique perspective. That is, they have the experience. They've got the, the learned experience. So you kind of, you don't have to always be an expert on both sides of the fence. What do you Mm -hmm. think? I love that analogy. That is such a good analogy because, you know, like think about footy commentators, like, you know, right, Nathan Buckley was a coach, Mm. he was a footy player, he played, he commentates and he brings that unique perspective. But like, Mm. I don't think Bruce McAvaney was a player and he's arguably the best sports commentator of all time. So it's actually such a good analogy because you're right, you don't have to be a qualified expert to have an opinion and and to add value. And so I think, you know, if you're playing in this space where you might not technically be a qualified expert in inverted commas, but you still have a point of view and you're offering advice, like focus on what you do have to offer and the value that you have to offer rather than what you think that you lack. I think that was a really good, really good lesson and awesome analogy by you. <laughs> oh. 
Well, thank you. <laughs> no, it is a good one. And um, yeah, I, I completely agree. Like it doesn't, and not everything comes from study. You don't have to learn everything by the books. And I really do believe in this whole idea of 10,000 hours um, and putting in, putting in the groundwork. So thank you, Jen, for that lesson. If you love this episode, please go ahead and share this with a friend. You can also join us over on Instagram, lady.brains. We have a wonderful Facebook group, the Lady Brains Clubhouse. And if you would like to, please leave us a review. 